There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com. You're listening to Drive Live. We have Ludmilla Yamalova from Yamalova and Plethka in the studio. Drive Live talks legal. We are talking legal. We want to hear from you. We want to answer your questions. Ludmilla is usually, you're never usually stumped, are you, Ludmilla? Sorry, let me give you a microphone. That's all right, but please don't jinx me. No, you do. You never really get stuck. You always say, well, this is what I know and this is might be a new law. So let, let today be the, the new chapter in my life and let me make a mistake or a no. stumble. Challenge accepted, Ludmilla. You're more than capable of dealing with the questions. If you do have one for Ludmilla, though, 4001, if you have the free app or you can call us. Sometimes it's a little easier if it's particularly a complicated issue. 04871 now, Ludmilla, we had a query about tax residency last week. We didn't get to answer it. And this is the certificate. This is from a European national. So the question reads as follows. I'm a European national with a bank account in Switzerland, but I have a UAE residence visa. My bank account in Switzerland recently requested that I submit to them a UAE tax residency certificate. How do I go about that is the question. Yes. So this is a certificate that's issued by the Ministry of Finance. And it's been issued actually for a number of years, but in the last year or a year and a half or so, the requirements um, have changed. Uh, in the past, uh, just having a UAE residence visa was sufficient to apply to the ministry and have that certificate issued. And obviously, the certificate is sort of based on the the bilateral treaties with a particular country. So it's always issued in for the purpose of a specific country with whom the UAE has a has a, uh, an agreement, a bilateral agreement uh, about the double taxation. Uh, so as of until about a year and a half ago or two years ago, it was much easier uh, to apply. It was just basically all you needed to show was that you had a UAE residence visa on the basis of whatever, either you as a shareholder or an employee, um, you had a visa and that was sufficient. Now, as of about a year and a half ago, those requirements have changed and it's become a lot more elaborate and a lot more involved. So in other words, it's not as easy now to show that you're is, is that you at least to receive the UAE tax residency certificate, uh, you now need to actually show that you are in, indeed a resident. So in other words, the idea of just having a UAE residence visa does not necessarily make you a resident. So now the authority requires a whole list of documents and um, that and on some of the documents on the list is one, for example, the bank account. Again, because the authorities want to see that, in fact, you are actually, and it's not just yeah. this authority, the, the local authority, but it's also obviously under the um, international pressure because that's sort of the idea with these bilateral agreements. You are trying, a particular government is, is trying to say, yes, this particular resident is a resident of this country. So how do you establish residency? And obviously, residency visa alone is, is not sufficient. And so what the uh, authorities are now wanting to show is in the, um, for the individuals or companies, in fact, the certificates can be issued by both comp- for both companies and individuals, is that they have more substantive roots in the country. So one of the requirements is a bank, a bank uh, statement. Now, it has to at least be six months of the of a bank statement. So that shows, once again, that you know, you're not just here yeah. having a visa. You actually need to have a banking uh, banking relationship here, and at least has to be it has to be at least six months old. Um, the other one, which is, again, these, these some of these requirements have actually kind of evolved over time. It's not like the list all of a sudden was updated and it's in its current form. So some of the other, one of the more recent requirements, for example, is the... Uh, the um, proof of residency, an actual residency. Now, 
in the past, how would you show residency? We could just do a lease agreement and sign between two parties and voila, you're finished. But um, these days, the authorities actually require us to have a JARI registration. So it's no longer enough, for example, to be subletting from someone or to be sharing accommodation. You actually need to have a JARI uh, EJR registration. And those of you who have recently done EJR registration might know that it's a lot more um, interrelated. And as the um, as the government has been promising, we're becoming a lot more e-government and everything is becoming a lot more consolidated and more integrated, uh, which is uh, in many way, ways a lot more centralized. So now when you have an EJRI registration, you also right away need to re- register your utilities and be it cooling or, or, uh, or your phone um, connection or um, or utilities or DIWA. Um, so basically, so you need to also have all those accounts in, in order to have IJARI. And so this is part when you showed to the Ministry of um, Finance that you are registered with IJARI. Yeah. It shows that you, in fact, have a proper residence base in the UAE that involves all this, renting property, setting up all the utilities, and the utilities have to be in your name. And now you have a bank statement. Then, then you have to show a salary certificate. Yeah. Uh, and obviously your residence visa. Uh, and so that's that's kind of the main. Ah, and the most important is that you have to show an immigration report. And the requirement on the Ministry of Finance website is that you must be in the country for 180 days. And that, so that's a big requirement because that's where a lot of people um, in the past Obviously, nobody really needed to show that, but it's it's getting a lot more difficult these days to show that you're actually in the country for 180 days. But you do need to present an immigration cert- a report from the authorities, uh, and uh, the requirement is that you are here for 180 days. So the whole requirement of issuing a residence certificate has evolved dramatically. I mean, I'm just wondering, um, how would this affect me, though? Because my the Ajari for our apartment is in my husband's name. So would I struggle to prove... Um, you know, to get this certificate if my bank in the UK requested it? No, because then you'd have to show to the authorities that it's in fact in your husband's name. So you'd have to show, okay. the, for example, either if you're his, under his sponsorship, that would be easy to show that, well, my visa is under my husband's sponsorship, for example, and here is the uh, lease agreement under his name. Uh, or you show a marriage certificate or whatever other document that basically links you to legally. I had um, a question about the salary certificate with uh, more and more people being self-employed and freelance they obviously won't have one. So how do they get around that? Uh, uh, good question. So it, uh, and then that's a, it's an important clarification. So it also applies to obviously any shareholders or business owners. So as you, if you're a business owner, you don't really have a salary certificate because you're your own boss and you pay you, your own salary on the good month. Uh, so if you're a shareholder, you don't need to show a salary certificate. And that's your, that's your question. So if you, if you um, you're, have your own business, then you just have to show this, the share, the uh, certificate, um, uh, the share certificate showing that you're actually the shareholder and that would satisfy the requirement. Okay. But as long as you have a banking statement, you see that's uh, that's yeah. how they link it. So you have a bank account. So you still have a viable, viable relationship with the country. Sure. Okay. We've had a text in for you, Ludmilla, from Alan P. This says, where do I stand with regards to poor service and workmanship? This is from a maintenance company. And we've agreed on a job. They've caused issues um, after the service in terms of the AC. They fitted toilet units on incorrectly. Am I blind to pay the remaining amount of money for the work as agreed? Or am I entitled to say to them, this work isn't to an acceptable standard. I'm not paying you any more money. 
Okay, so what this relates to in legal terms, and I'll try to simplify it as much as I can, is a breach of contract. So uh, you obviously, this listener had um, contracted for a set of services and on the basis of the representations um, as to what the quality of the services were, the scope of the services were, they agreed on a certain price. Mm -hmm. And the payment terms, thankfully for the listener, the payment terms were agreed at least uh, to be in stages, which is always very healthy for exactly the same reasons that we're seeing here in this case. And um, uh, so the listener, let's say, followed up uh, or, or, or with his side of the bargain by paying the first payment. Now, the agreement was for a particular s- a set of services and particular workmanship and, or quality of services. So if what you received was is below that, then basically that qualifies as a breach of agreement. In other words, the other side, the contractor, did not perform the side of the bargain because they did not perform the services for which you contracted. Uh, and by under the UAE law, contract law, and this is a very similar legal principle in other countries, is that in um, in the law of contracts, your obligation, your own contractual obligation is suspended if the other side breached first. In other words, if they did not deliver, therefore, then you do not need to pay the rest of your uh, of your, um, your payment uh, until they have complied with their side of the uh, of the bargain. Um, so in this case, it's a pure breach of contract case. However, you need to be prepared to show that um, in fact there was a breach of contract. And unfortunately, from experience here, um, often the contracts or services are not detailed enough. Yeah. And so therefore, the, the either the scope of services is not clearly detailed or the quality of the services are not well laid out uh, to actually, at least on the face of it, on the face of the document, to claim there was a breach of contract. That being said, the the courts look at the actual situation of, of what happened and not necessarily what's, uh, what's in writing. So if you can uh, otherwise be prepared to show objective evidence that even though this particular quality of the services uh, was not described in the document itself, if you actually look at um, you know, the pictures, for example, or whatever inspection reports, um, then um, I mean, the courts will use that evidence as well as, as evidence showing that, um, that the, the services were not properly performed. So in this case, you don't need to, um, but, but you have to be realistic and, and fair as well. Yeah. So let's say if you pay 10% and the services you received were in your kind of reasonable mind were to the tune of, let's say, 70%. So perhaps you you may want to uh, to offer a compromise because having you know paying 10% for something that if you've gotten, if, if the value of what you received was a lot higher than that, uh, you know, it's it's probably, it's in your interest and it's obviously mm. would be more fair to at least pay to that extent and just hold back whatever it is you think is the sort of reasonable offset from the original price. And where would they stand if, for example, they went on to get the work completed by maybe another company and have that finished? Would they be able to show that as proof that they've had to pay someone else to do it? You do, but you have to be careful because, first of all, you need to make sure that the the previous or the, the original contract is either clear enough or at least you have clear enough proof that the previous contract was not properly complied with and that also you needed to continue to, to bring in somebody else to continue the works because otherwise, let's say, you know, you couldn't just sort of leave it as is. One and two is that the new contractors are not going to performing a, a service that is several several steps up or yeah. several you know, several notches higher, for example, or that the scope of services that they're performing is much higher. And we see these kinds of arguments often. So, for example, 
in a different scenario when when the tenants have claimed a compensation from for being uh, evicted unfairly by landlord, they would go and they say, well, okay, now the apartment, the two-bedroom apartment I'm renting is much much more expensive, so you have to pay me uh, for the compensation of that. But if you're moving from a studio to a two-bedroom, these are not comparable properties, so you need to make sure that whatever the services you um, you hire afterwards, um, that they are comparable. Uh, yeah. uh, that's one. But two, and I think also the listener uh, made a few a few comments uh, um, regarding the so the first contractor, is that you actually, as a, as a, as a recipient of the services, may actually have a claim against the contractor because of the quality of the services were so subpar that, in fact, it may have caused further damage. And this, I think that's what the listener said, that since then the AC wasn't pro- properly installed in there. Obviously, that can cause damages to the property. You, in fact, you can you may be able to pursue the contractor for the damages that they suffer, uh, that they caused you as a result of their poor workmanship. Drive Live Talks Legal. We are talking legal on the programme today. Our guest is Ludmilla Yamanova from Yamanova and Plethka. No Tim Elliott, so Emma Brain is here too. Now, Emma, you've got a text that's come in all about freelance staff. Yeah, this is a good one because it could affect uh, quite a lot of people. Basically, the SMS says, we are looking at employing some freelance staff. What are the regulations regarding visa and contract requirements? For example, can we pay somebody daily for the work they do? And uh, how do we how do we issue these? How, basically, how do they go about it? Okay, so there are basically three elements, if you will, to this particular arrangement. One is the visa or the sponsorship of the of the employee. Uh, the other one is the contract, the underlying contract that uh, for the relationship with the freelance relationship. And the third is payment. Uh, so, with regards to the visa, and this is the um, uh, that's the premise of the the recently passed law uh, allowing freelance is that um, as of as of that law, it's now possible to hire somebody who is not on your sponsorship. So, for for example, let's say I work for Emma, and um, so you are you are my sponsor. So now, in the past, I wasn't able to work for anybody else while I was in your sponsorship because of the, I guess, because of the laws, the way they were set up, and I guess the potential liability that I might cause by um, to you by working for somebody else. Now, so that particular element um, is, is is has been resolved. It's not necessary for, for example, for Natalie to hire me as a freelancer um, to for me to also be on her visa. Um, so, but in order to um, uh, in order to uh, have a legitimate legitimate relationship um, between me and Natalie, for example, for this freelance relationship, if in the past Natalie would I would have required um, to be to get an NOC from Emma so that I could work for Natalie. Now this NOC is no longer required, uh, but um, the the relationship between me and Natalie still Natalie still needs to be memorialized somehow. So you still need to have a contract for services that's sort of be, between us. Uh, and that's the uh, that's the contract for that would uh, ultimately underline for uh, things such as how many hours per day I'd be working and how I would be getting paid. And as per that, because it's a freelance contract, so as per that contract, Natalie could work pay me whatever it is that she wanted to pay me uh, as long as I agree to it. So, so it doesn't have to be an hourly or, or it doesn't have to be a monthly salary. It could be hourly, it could be daily, whatever it is that she and I agree. Uh, so, but uh, but you do need to register this the contract with the relevant authority. So it's uh, it's not just between her and me. It's let's say if I work in a free zone and Natalie is working under DD, we would need to go and register that contract uh, between us with DD so that um, we have a legitimate registered contract showing that our relationship is um, uh, is, is properly documented. Um, as I say that, it's also important to uh, to highlight that. 
the visa requirement, while I'm not required to be on Natalie's sponsorship anymore, it is still required that you that I have a UAE residence visa. So it's not so that, for example, I am visiting from the UK and mm-hmm. because I'm a UK citizen or British citizen, I can come and go every month or every three months uh, without actually having have a visa. So that because I don't have to I don't have a, a, a an employment visa at that point in time. So um, the freelance relationship in that context is still not allowed. So in order for me to work here, I need to have an employment visa, a residence visa. What about someone that might be on their spouse's visa where it might state not allowed to work? Would they still have to get an NOC from the spouse to do this? Uh, yeah, that's a great question because we just saw this very recently again. And just because of that specific phrase on the visa itself, uh, not allowed to work. And that's always been the case that for female uh, st- for female. Uh, Employees um, who are sponsored by their spouses, um, they um, they they do still they can work even though on the visa it says not allowed to to work, uh, but uh, they will always they like before they needed to have an OC from the spouse, and it's just it's a very simple document, mm. just a little one sentence. I don't mind for my wife to work, um, so you still need to do that, and you don't need to worry because I know people do because all the other sort of documents are. Are, seem less official than what you have on your visa yeah. and your passport. It says not allowed to work. So people often question, can I actually really work if it says that on my visa? But you've always been able to work um, as long as you have an NOC from your uh, spouse and as long as all the other elements add up, such as you have a contract for services and you're working for a company that is properly registered and licensed, uh, then yes, with that NOC from your spouse, you can do it. Uh, as I as you know, while we're on this topic, I want to clarify as well that it doesn't work the other way around. So in other words, if I sponsor my husband uh, and it says, you know, he's sponsored by me, not allowed to work, I cannot give him an NOC to work. So if he wants to work, he needs to go and get his own visa. Yeah. Ludmilla, I have told you this before. I won't give too many details away because it's not very fair, but I know someone who has that housewife visa and says housewife not allowed to work and has convinced their husband that that is correct. So they've told their husband they, <laughs> under no circumstances, can work. And I'm just amazed that they pulled it off. Well, I guess I will. If, if they thought of me friend, in a friendly way after today's show, they probably will think less of me since I might have ruined their surprise with their husbands. <laughs> but it's it's interesting because obviously, you do, like you say, you do see that in your passport. And I thought... <gasps> oh, I don't think I'm going to be able to work then. And it was like, actually, no, you are allowed. And this is all above board. And like you say, get the NOC. So there are options. So great to answer that question. Now, Ludmilla, something that's a bit of an issue, particularly for someone like Emma, you do freelance and you do lots of different exciting (laughs) projects. Um, We're going to talk about payment of invoices uh, now for a second. And You know, unfortunately, we live in a world where sometimes things aren't paid on time. And let's be realistic. That could be for lots of reasons. It could be to do with the might be the person who looks after the finances and the companies on leave or sick. You know, there's genuine reasons. But this query came into us. This is about um, the payment of invoices to a company. We're a Dubai free zone company. We had a six-month contract with another Dubai Free Zone company for our services. It was signed and stamped. We had a monthly retainer of twenty thousand US dollars. Uh, we we invoiced the relevant retainer every month as is standard. We received three payments against three invoices, so all paid late 
but they were paid. However, the final three invoices, and that's from January to March of this year, weren't paid. We've tried to chase the invoices with no luck. We recently found out that the owners of the company are in the process of closing it, so they will not have to pay the outstanding invoices. They've already filed for closure with the free zone. This morning, we visited that said free zone and they informed us that our case is a Dubai courts case and that the free zone can only act or apply a sanction if we produce a court order. We rely heavily on our invoices to be paid and missed other opportunities for pursuing the engagement with this now defunct company. We've been informed that we need to seek a legal advisor to file a court case or an order against the client in order to get repaid. So do you have any guidance or can you possibly assist us? Um, And they also want to know what uh, costs could potentially be associated with this and the likelihood of it being resolved. Let's take this separately, Ludmilla. First of all, um, a bit of guidance in terms of what they're being told in the free zone. They're being told, we can't help you unless you get a court order or initiate a court case. Is that right? Um, Absolutely. And that's correct. And I'm glad we started with that uh, twist on the case because, or on the question, because we do get a lot of uh, clients who are sort of frustrated. Oh, well, we went to the free zone and uh, they didn't help us. So we went to uh, the bank, they didn't help us. Uh, or we went to whatever authority, they didn't help us. Went to the land department, that's one of my favorite. Went to the land department and they didn't help us. Well, it's very important to highlight, once again, that each one of these authorities, they are regulatory authorities. They're not judicial authorities. And in no other country do these, for the most with, I guess, perhaps very, very few exceptions, um, do these authorities adjudicate disputes. So what we're talking about here, there is a dispute. There is an, a breach of contract and obviously um, a, um, outstanding debt uh, for services. But what that, in very simple terms, that's a, that's a, a breach of contract. And so a breach of contract means it's you have a dispute. A dispute you go and you resolve in... Uh, in the judicial forum, you don't resolve it with the regulators. I mean, the regulators, you can complain to the regulators, the regulators can examine uh, or inspect a particular practice, a company, if it falls under their, their purview, but they will not go and fight on your behalf because that's just not their role and it just isn't their role anywhere else in the country. And um, and I think in a way, the uh, the authorities, these kind of authorities, these sort of regulatory authorities in this country have been a lot more effective than in other countries. So, for example, insurance committee. You know, we've had a few clients have filed claims with insurance committee. Again, being the regulatory authority and the insurance um, representatives were, or committee representatives were a lot more effective in putting some pressure on an insurance company to have their in, um, the, the claims paid, one example, right? Also, the land department in the past has had some leverage in being able to reach out to the developers, for example, and and um, encourage them to settle or to at least um, have some kind of a dialogue with the other side. Uh, but generally speaking, these are exceptions to the rule and, not, uh, and, and the, the people should not expect that these entities will actually fight their corner or will fight on their behalf. Whenever you have a dispute, like just like in any, in any other country, you either resolve it um, between each other through by way of settlement, for example, or if you come to a, a standstill, you go to court, and that's just that's just the yeah. overarching premise. And that, and it's important to highlight because over and over again, we see people that are frustrated. I went to the land department; they didn't help. I went to the RDC, the rent committee; they didn't help. Well. No, that's not their job to help. If you yeah. have a dispute, to file a case. So in this particular case, um, the authority that gave them this advice, yes, they were correct. Uh, they cannot do anything um, then because that's not their jurisdiction. Uh, so if you do have a court case, where the authority can come in is that obviously what the company is doing here is they're liquidating. 
when they're liquidating, they need to receive all sorts of NOCs and and uh, sign-offs from, including from the authorities, and ultimately and from the auditors. And ultimately, it shows that there are no other debts. And so, if there is debt, then that debt will not be. Um, you know, the, the authorities will not allow for the company to be closed uh, until the debt is settled. And this is also as one of. Um, one of the steps in closing down the company, it's not so simple to oh, close down the company, but one of the steps in closing down the company is that you publish um, in the newspaper that the company is being closed down to allow the creditors to come forward and say, okay, well, we're being owed this money. But ultimately, the authority needs to know that the claim is legitimate because mm-hmm. I could come forward and say, I, you know, they owe me money. So for for something like a freeze on authority before they, you know, for them to stall the liquidation process or the closing of the company, they need to have some legitimate objective evidence that the company is uh, actually owes money. So yes, the court process will be the starting point. However, you can also uh, perhaps write to the companies if you know who the liquidators are, because again, closing the company here is not uh, is not the same as closing a company perhaps in other countries. It's it basically amounts to or um, to, to liquidation, which means you need to appoint a liquidator, auditors uh, that will review your books and will tell you well, yes, there are claims or these claims can be settled. These ones should not be settled. And yeah. and so you could maybe notify the auditors um, or the liquidators um, that there case. is yeah that there is basically a payment that's due. And that it may be that they will work as um, sort of as an incentive to try to settle. Uh, but ultimately, if you want your money paid, you can only really do it through, again, uh, uh, through a settlement uh, or through a court process. So they continue with this, Ludmilla. So, okay, they need to file a court case or order. That's something they will need some legal assistance with. It's not one of those issues where you could just go and present uh, the documentation yourself. Do you know, it's not really so. You can, and especially a case like this, if you have, uh, much depends on documentation. So if you do have a very clear contract for services and clear agreement as to what um, the the value of the services were going to be and you have evidence that those services were performed, uh, then you really don't, I mean, it's a, it's a breach of contract once again. Mm-hmm. You just show, I, you, we perform services to the tune of whatever, $60,000 and here's evidence of that and we didn't get paid. So it's actually from a legal standpoint it's not a very complex matter uh, from a practical standpoint uh, and you don't you're not required to have a lawyer to represent you but where it becomes a little more uh, uh, more nuanced is that if you don't speak Arabic and because everything in the courts here is in Arabic and and therefore you need to a, know the language and, and be prepared to translate, legally translate all the documents into Arabic and make sure that they're correct. You know, B, sub, make all your submissions in Arabic and C, also know know the court system and where to submit documents and um, how to attend hearings and such. So ultimately, no, it's not a complex legal issue, but... Um, it's it's easier to um, to handle it if you know somebody who knows the the court system, but you're not required to do so. And there's plenty of people that represent themselves and do so successfully. You just want to make sure that you have somebody on standby, either as a translator or a friend, who can ensure that the the information you're being you're being given from the court you understand, mm. and that you show up when you're supposed to show up and submit documents you're sm- supposed to submit. Um, so it's it's easier with a lawyer, but not required, especially for this kind of amount of money. And finally, um, they, they, they're interested in terms of the costs associated presenting a case to the courts. Does that come with a fee, I'm guessing? Uh, yes. So the, the courts, it's uh, depending on the, the, the amount of the claim, but it's sort of 5 to 7.5% per, per of the claimed amount. And it's capped at uh, 40,000 dirhams. Uh, so 
And um, so that, that's basically that's just the court fee. And then if there is a, a requirement to have an expert appointed, and in, mo- in a lot of cases there is an expert appointed, mm-hmm. but something like this, perhaps if the evidence is clear um, on its face that there is um, um, that the services were performed, you may not need to uh, to appoint an expert. But it is something that you need to kind of budget for. And experts go anywhere from between seven and a half thousand dirhams to fifteen thousand dirhams. Wow. And then. Um, uh, and then whatever legal translation, and if you win, all those costs you'll be able to recover, but not legal fee, not legal fees, not attorneys' fees, just the court fees. Okay, you're listening to Drive Live with Emma Brain and Natalie Lindo Taylor. No, Tim Ludmilla Yamanova is here from Yamanova and Plethka, and Ludmilla, we have a question here that's come in. It's about cancelled projects. There's no name on this. It says, how do authorities handle cancelled projects starting from deciding which should be cancelled to liquidating assets and handling refunds? In light of the recent Dubai land apartment seizures, as um, per a news article which they've attached, which procedures will be followed to liquidate the assets and distribute them to the investors? And they're quite concerned about the role of the liquidation committees in Dubai courts. So this is uh, sometimes to do with properties maybe people have bought off plan. Something goes wrong. Where does that leave them? All right. So this is... um uh, there's in fact in court in the court this is, is done by the Dubai courts to begin with so it's the well but in conjunction with the land department is the authorities it's usually the land department um, and they they um, sometimes hire um, experts and also along with the court they will review for example the projects that had been launched and had not been delivered and uh, ultimately will assess them for viability uh, now which specific criteria they use in, in assessing uh, whether the project is viable or not are not publicly available uh, but um, from experience and from practice I and mean, usually uh, if um, if they can if the developer ran away and there were a lot of uh, a lot of developers that did run away after the 2008 for global um, so setback uh, so if there is nobody else to complete to, to, uh, to complete the project then obviously the project becomes uh, I, I mean potentially unviable now sometimes you know, there are some projects even if the developer ran, ran away if there were assets enough assets in the company's accounts then the uh, regulators may be able to determine that they can bring somebody else in to take over the project project. Uh, so, but if they don't, <clears throat> so, and in fact, th- that's why, that's why I think there isn't really sort of a, a hard, fast uh, set of requirements or criteria that the authorities look at in deciding which project is viable or not. It's, it's a whole set of issues you know, where it stands, you know, how much money they've collected, how much money of that money was in the escrow account. In other words, how much commercially um, there is still in the um, in the accounts to allow for the developer, the new developer, for example, to proceed. Uh, and then sometimes also, and there, there's an initiative that has been launched a few years back with the land department that they will work with a few banks to see if the banks would be interested in funding some of these projects to, projects to completion. So I guess once all those criteria had been looked at, uh, if the authorities decide that it doesn't really matter, it's just either the project is not worth pers- uh, pursuing because it's just it's not enough uh, enough commercial sense to to build it, um, um, or because they cannot find somebody to take over, then they decide to to cancel. Again, we, these the the this is the full list of requirements or criteria we do not know, uh, but what we do know is that once the authorities decide to do it, and that usually comes the the original decision comes from the land department. 
And then they transfer the cases to the, uh, the Dubai courts. And then Dubai courts will then list um, these projects, um, or, or actually it has, it has, has three liquidation committees, so uh, which will take these projects and start the liquidation process. And in fact, there is, um, so if, if you are not sure what's happening with your project uh, or curious um, about what's happening with some of the other projects, you can go onto the Dubai court website, and it's under the www.dc, the Dubai Courts, gov.ae, public services slash canceled real estate project. So it's it's a government website. It's, it's the court website that actually has a list of all the projects, which now, by now, the authorities have decided to cancel. But remember, so often people say, well, I heard or somebody told me that my project was canceled or the land department said it was canceled. So uh, making a decision for, uh, for the authorities to make a decision to cancel a project does not necessarily mean that the project is already in the liquidation stages. So it has to be transferred from the land department to the court and the court has to initiate the liquidation proceedings uh, then bef- you know, in order for your project to appear in that liquidation list on the court website. But there are still some projects that are still, that perhaps the authorities have decided um, would not be viable to proceed and they will be they're under cancellation but they have not yet been transferred to court so just manage your expectations and so um, since it's been a few years um, since the, the financial kind of turnaround and uh, in the, the global economy uh, there you know, the, the many more projects have been added to that list and in fact the courts have been going through the list and dispersing funds uh, to the creditors and so it's very important if you if you did invest in one of these projects to keep an eye uh, on what's going on. And again, because this is a it's a government website and uh, there is information available in English as well. So there's a list of of all the projects that the courts have decided now to cancel and also the status of um, what's happening with those projects. And so uh, in uh, if you go through the list, it will even tell you in some of the projects what, what normally happens is what the court does is they will ask all the creditors, i.e. the investors, to submit their claims and to prove that they actually invested. And then they have to review those files and then also in parallel assess what assets that particular project still has and how to liquidate the assets to be able to liquid uh, to liquidate or have some liquid cash to distribute to the investors. And most of the time it... It involves obviously whatever is in the escrow account that goes back to the court uh, under the custody, the court's custody for the purposes of uh, disbursement later, uh, or or and then the ultimate step is actually selling off or auctioning off of the plot. And so these um, the liquidation committees in the court and that's on the website will tell you when a particular project has already been in particular, uh, li- uh, sold off on the auction and how much money they've received. So if you go to the uh, Dubai Court website, it actually has a number of projects that will show you, um, one, um, when, for example, the next hearing is, or, uh, by which date you're supposed to submit your claim as an investor to show um, that you have an interest in it, and also, and B, uh, what uh, if they've already sold the property, they sold the, the assets, and how much money they have recovered? So there's a number of um, of details on the on the court's website. That, for example, showing that they've already auctioned off uh, Project X and they've collected 33 million. I'm just reading off the list: 33 million dirhams. And so now they will disperse um, that money amongst the investors. Um, so this is actually, I have to tell you, this is a very very positive step because in fact it doesn't require for the investors to do anything all they need to do is just to submit here this is proof of of payment um, and then the courts do the rest the authorities do the rest and we just did this for one of our clients a, a project we have monitored over the last several years and basically we didn't do very much we did not need to submit legal arguments so you don't need to pay court fees you don't need to 
hire lawyers. You don't need to uh, to argue your case. You just need to submit here, obviously, my payments. And then the court, as it's going through the liquidation, it disburses the funds. So it's a, it's an administrative step. And we've had just recently, uh, one of our, two of our clients have received to the two, almost 2 million dirhams from the courts without having, have, having invested um, a penny to the court uh, for purposes of litigating this case. So in fact, there are more and more projects that are going through this process and more and more uh, people are actually seeing money um, paid out to them without really doing anything, without paying to lawyers or the courts. So it's actually a very positive development and I encourage everybody to just keep an eye on that court website list because your project might be there. Okay. Um, just very briefly, Emma's got a very quick question. I think we could just we'll squeeze, try and squeeze this person. Um, so basically, someone's asking, they've had a misdiagnosis of their daughter's heart condition. They're pursuing a claim with the clinic. But at the same time, they find themselves in a situation where the daughter is essentially become stateless. Uh, they say, I'm a UK national uh, since birth. My wife is a Pakistani national. Uh, but both the UK and Pakistan aren't granting citizenship to my daughter because she was born in the UAE. Is there a legal process which can grant her citizenship or special status so we can get her residence? visa. Uh, well, absolutely. And it should be through one of those countries. To be honest with you, I'm not sure. Maybe you're not receiving the right information, not going to the right uh, sources of information because there's hundreds, if not thousands of kids are being born in, in this country um, today, uh, every day uh, from parents of different nationalities. And just because the, the, the child was born in this country does not mean that um, the the countries of um, from which their the child's parents hold citizenship will not grant them the citizenship. It just does not make any sense. It just I've never seen that happen. I know, in fact, that it's not correct. Um, we've know plenty of, of clients and friends mm. and, and the neighbors in that very same situation where parents are from different nationalities and certainly British and Pakistani, the, the Pakistan, those two nations we know, grant um, a re- a citizenship to the children that are born in the UAE. So I just say it sounds like a very... A very uh, an easy issue to resolve because um, just by, by going to them, let's say you go to the British embassy and submit the documents, you just need to make sure to submit the documents showing that you're obviously married and this is your child, the birth certificates and such. You just need, it's just a matter of documentation and it's nothing, nothing much more complex than that. So I just encourage you to approach the, the relevant embassies with the right documentation and it's, it's a fairly simple process after that. Okay, that's all we've got time for on Drive Live Talks Legal. Lots of questions we didn't get time for. We will return to them next week, rather. Big thank you to our guests today, Ludmilla Yamalova from Yamalova and Pleska. Ludmilla, always a pleasure. Likewise, thank you. There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcast at DubaiEye1038.com.